So at this point, I'd like to introduce the next speaker, Dr. Amy McMichael. She's a professor of dermatology at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. She reserved her MD, received her MD from UPenn and um, her residency from University of Michigan. She is a diplomate of the American Board of Dermatology. Her research focuses on hair and scalp disorders primarily and skin disease of deeply pigmented skin. Uh, her publications include many peer-reviewed articles, um, and she's also the co-editor of the Hair and Scalp Diseases, Medical, Surgical, and Cosmetic Treatments. She's on the editorial board of Cosmetic Dermatology and the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. She served as a consultant to many pharmaceutical industries. She's a member of the Scientific Advisory Council on the National Alopecia Areata Foundation. She's also vice president of the Women's Dermatologic Society and current secretary treasurer of the North American Hair Research Society. Thank you. Thank you and good morning. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. I'm always excited when I get invited to this meeting because you always have such great speakers. I get to hear usually whoever is before and after me and I enjoy those lectures so much. So I appreciate it and you always have nice um, places where you have them too. So that's always pleasant as well. So today we're gonna take a little turn from the Retin-A story and go to my clinic. So um, any of you who are trying to get away from clinic, I'm sorry. We're back in clinic. So we're gonna talk about um, the approach to scarring and non-scarring hair loss in um, our talk today. I do have some disclosures to uh, let you know about, and I'll try to point out any time where this could be a problem, but usually it's not. Um, so what do I see? You know, I have a hair loss clinic that I've had now for 16 years at Wake Forest, and it used to be just one afternoon a week. And because my um, wait list has expanded to one year, I've had to add another clinic. So I now do a Thursday morning clinic every other week. Um, these patients, if you let them, will expand into your entire clinic, um, your entire time. They will want to come to your home and talk to you about things. You know, they will cost you at parties. Um, so. Uh, what I hope to do in this talk is make it simple, make you be able to uh, shorten your visits. I, I know that a lot of people um, don't relish hair loss patients because, um, you know, they typically want to tell you the whole story. You know, if they're 72, they might start at age two and tell you, you know, sort of in real time what has happened to them over their life. And, you know, you don't have time for that in a busy clinic. So I'm hoping that this clinic, this, this lecture will help you make your job easier in clinic, minimize your time factor, but still get all the information that you need to help these patients because they really are excellent patients um, when they get the information that they need and the treatments that we have available can be helpful even though there are not a ton of them. So in my clinic, I see a significant number of patients. Obviously, um, you know, I see a ton because of what I do. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't think about hair loss as being really all about hair breakage. You know, patients are quite underwhelmed. I won't talk about this much today because we didn't have three hours. We only had one hour. Um, but it is something that you should look for. And when I see that um, in my patients with just, you know, hair loss, with, I mean, just breakage, it's about 5% of patients. My non-scarring patients, including female pattern hair loss, alopecia areata, and telogen effluvium, are about 30% of my practice when they come in with just one thing going on. And then scarring hair loss, which encompasses all of these, which we'll talk about today, is about 58%. So I'm seeing a lot of scarring hair loss, much more than I probably saw 10, 15 years ago. 
And then we see a fair number of traction cases, um, 5%. And the reason I separate that out from scarring is because sometimes it's early, sometimes it's latent, and there's um, controversy over whether it's truly a scarring form of hair loss. Hair shaft abnormalities make up a small percentage of my practice, perhaps 2%. Um, and what I see a lot of right now is a combination of all of these sorts of things. And so we'll talk about how to look for um, overlap cases as well in our lecture today. So what about an intake questionnaire? You know, I'm often asked about this, and I do actually use an intake questionnaire, but I think when you use one, you have to use it with a goal. Is it going to be to make your life easier? Are you gonna really have time to read it? Are you gonna send it out to the patients before they come? Are they gonna just do it in your office waiting area? You know, what do you wanna get from it? And really what I use it for is to help my residents sort of get their thoughts together about what they present to me. Because I usually have two residents and potentially a fellow working in that clinic and I want them all to sort of understand where I need to be, what information I need. But what I find is, is that um, if it's something that you have to really go over significantly, it can slow you down a bit, especially if it's very long. So it's a good practice, I think, where nurses uh, fill in the history for you before you even get in the room. Great for studies. If you do studies in your office or have an interest in studies, it's a nice way to collect information. Um, it's good if you go over it. If you don't go over it and you just have it sitting there in the chart, it's not really very, very helpful for you. Um, and if you have to go over it, it is poor, you know, because then you have to take the time to go over it. And that's what we're trying to improve on is your time. Um, it's bad when patients answer, in, answer this, uh, the questions incorrectly, and if it's too long, they get confused and they get tired and they get sort of um, um, survey fatigue. So you have to make sure you don't make it too long. Keep it to a page if you're gonna do it. Ask only what you need to know. If you don't wanna know what vitamin supplements they had in 1972, don't ask about it. You know, it's very little that vitamin supplementation information is gonna give you about whether or not this is important hair loss. So I, I say keep it to the minimal questions, things that you really, really wanna know. So what, what kind of questions would, would I put on a questionnaire? Well, this is one that I actually adapted from a, a um, practice in uh, my area in Concord Dermatology. They see, you know, every kind of patient you can imagine, a very busy practice, I think there are eight um, people in there, I think there's six um, faculty, well, six um, dermatologists and two PAs, and so they're a very busy practice, and I like their, their questionnaire. I have one, and as I said, it's, it solves a different problem, but I like this for a busy office practice. These are all the questions that they had on, and I changed some of them around a little bit, but I think the very important, the most important one is how long have you had hair loss? Invariably, when I look at this questionnaire, question on my questionnaire, patients put one number. When I actually talk to them, it's another number. You know, they put on there two years, but then when you talk to them, they say, well, it really started six years ago, but it just got worse in the last two years. Or they'll put six months. Well, it really started five years ago, but it just got worse in the last, five, last six months. So that question is really a loaded question, and you're gonna to have to ask that no matter whether it's on your survey or not. So I um, highlight that because don't go by what they put down because they will always tell you one thing and then think about it as they're going through the story with you and change it. So that's the one variable I think on, on these questionnaires that will lead you astray. Um, how long, how have you noticed increased shedding of hair? Have you had gradual hair loss? Have you noticed sudden hair loss? Do you have a rash in the scalp? Do you have itching in the scalp? Do you have pain in the scalp? And these are good because they're quick, 
yes or no answers. They don't have to sit there and ponder. Sometimes only on Thursdays, you know, it's yes or no. Do you have a long-standing medical illness? Do you have bald spots? Are there any family members with hair loss? What about thyroid disease? You know, they always want to talk about their thyroid disease. They've gotten their thyroid tested by the time they've seen me, probably seven times by four different doctors. And even though all of those were normal, they still want to talk about thyroid disease. So I put that on there basically for them, okay? Have you had a high fever surgery, change in medications or infections in the last six months? Super important questions. People forget what happened to them six to eight months ago. You know, our lives are super busy, everybody's rushing around, and they forget that they had a surgery for tooth extraction because teeth are not that important unless they're painful or giving you problems or you have to pay for some dental work. They're never, they're never in the forefront of your mind. So you would not imagine the number of people that forget about procedures that they've had or severe infections if it was six to nine months ago. So make sure you really ask about that. Have you lost weight or been on a diet in the last six months? Do you have chemical perms or relaxers on your hair? Do you use hair dye? Do you wear braids in your hair? And do you wear a hair weave of any kind? And the, you know, you have to kind of periodically update these um, because the cultural style changes with, over time. So that's just an example questionnaire that you might ask. Um, uh, in your office and it gives you sort of a good um, idea of what's going on with their hair care practices and you can address your um, survey beyond your uh, examination beyond that. So truly if we take a step back in terms of what patients are expecting of us you know when they come in and, and have this hair loss because you know it's a very tumultuous thing for people to have hair loss. You know, you, you feel like, gosh, you know, it's something that uh, making, there's something internal that's making me sick, what's going on? It's very stressful. Um, so patients hope is that their hair loss is due to a medication that they've taken or that they are taking currently, a vitamin deficiency or some sort of hormonal abnormality that nobody has found yet. The problem is the diagnosis is rarely due to a medication, a vitamin deficiency, or a hormonal abnormality. It doesn't mean that it's never due to those things. Sometimes I do find something um, that causes this and it's a medication, um, but rarely, unfortunately. And so since the diagnosis is most likely um, one of the most common forms of hair loss, like female pattern hair loss, telogen effluvium, or scarring hair loss, we have to sort of bring their expectations together with what the truth is in the diagnosis. And that has to be handled really gently because people don't wanna necessarily hear that the story they've been building in their mind about why they have hair loss is wrong. Um, sometimes it takes a couple of visits for them to get their head around that. Um, and so you have to be somewhat cognizant of their expectations, um, ask them, and then sort of address your, uh, your decisions about their diagnosis based on those. So what do we do in the first encounter? Well, we've already kind of talked about it because we've talked about an intake survey. Um, the historical information I think is really important. You know, what is their age? You would not imagine how many 80, 70 to 80 some year old people come to see me about hair loss. You know, these people are very active. They're, you know, jazzercising five days a week. You know, they have a busy life. Um, and they don't want to have hair loss even if they're in their um, uh, 70s. So, you know, check the age because there may be things that you can do with a younger person that you can't do with an older person or vice versa. Duration of hair loss. I talked about that question already. People really tend to 
minimize it when they're writing it down because it makes them feel better somehow to say that it's less time than it was, but make sure you get the full duration. Where is the location of the hair loss? You'd be surprised how many times people tell me that they've gone to um, their doctor or even sometimes, unfortunately, another dermatologist and nobody has even looked at their hair, looked at their scalp, you know. Um, it's, it's one of the things that we do best, so you gotta look. What symptoms are you having? Are they having associated with the hair loss? Itching, burning, stinging, all of those are important because sometimes even if you can't address the hair loss, you can address the symptoms that they're having and get those under control. What treat, previous treatment they have? I don't know if you all have experienced this, but a lot of my patients come in and so it's like a quiz for me to come up with a treatment even though they've had treatment from another dermatologist before. They don't tell me that, so they wanna see if I come up with the same thing that the other dermatologist comes up with. So I always ask, you know, what treatment have you had point blank because sometimes they won't tell you unless you ask them. Um, and then we talked about the, you know, the benefits potentially of a questionnaire. Well, on the examination, I think determining a pattern of hair loss is really important, and we'll talk about that, um, sort of pattern recognition and alopecia in a minute. Um, we talked about extent. What is the health of the hair shafts? You know, even if the patient does have uh, underlying form of hair loss, you know, truly lost from the scalp um, with decreased density, um, if the, the hair is not healthy, if the hair shaft hair shafts are not healthy, that's gonna be super important to address as well, and you need to work with them on that. What's the health of the background scalp? So say that their um, scalp is really significantly unhealthy and they're having a lot of underlying hair loss. You've got to get that scalp back to health in order to make sure that the hair loss is not in some way related to that. You know, you can read many a book that says that psoriasis is not, does not cause hair loss, but in some patients it does. So you do have to sometimes clear up the psoriasis first. Um, to biopsy or not to biopsy, you know, I always worry about previous biopsies, not in my clinic, not because other dermatologists don't know how to biopsy or because other dermatopathologists don't know how to read scalp. It's just the, the numbers. You know, if you're not used to reading a number of hair biopsies, sometimes, you know, your readings are a little different or sometimes they'll be able to um, read and see all the things that are there, but then the ultimate uh, diagnosis is incorrect. So sometimes there's, a, there's actually a very uh, good group of pathologists and I, I love their, the way that they read out their slides because they always put um, everything that they see, but then when they get down to the end and they come up with the diagnosis, sometimes that's not exactly right. So I just cover that up and look at what they say about the, the biopsy and then I can figure out what's going on. So it's important to make sure that all of those things happened in previous biopsies. Um, and if it didn't happen, then I usually do my own. The other thing that is interesting is that a lot of people don't do two biopsies. I always do two, one for horizontal sectioning, one for vertical sectioning, and I think that if they don't have that previously, then it's important to get that. Um, and then what's the best location of the biopsy, and we'll talk about that later, and that will all help you to determine the course of the treatment. Okay, so what are we getting into? We're starting to get into the clinical, start getting into seeing the patients. Um, well, the historical information I think is super important. Uh, you know, you don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but is this hair loss acute? Is it less than six months? I almost always like to hear about this being less than six months because that usually means I can get in there and do some treatment or I can get in there and diagnose it and give them a good idea of what's happening. Typically, if it's less than six months, it's gonna be alopecia areata, it's gonna be breakage from hair care practices or telogen effluvium. So those are some just some good sort of um, quick and dirty kind of assessments. What about chronic hair loss, more than six months? Then we're talking about probably female pattern hair loss, so in case of a man, male pattern hair loss. 
central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, or CCCA, uh, chronic telogen effluvium, or um, multiple telogen effluviums, one after another, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Lichen plantar pilaris is another uh, very common chronic loss, hair loss that I see. What are their symptoms? Um, you want to know about all their uh, itching, pain, scaling, hair loss on other parts of the body, and we'll talk about why that's important, pustules, and all their systemic symptoms. And the reason why you want to briefly go over that is because um, they associate all of them with that, and if you don't ask, they'll think you're missing the fact that they have some ungodly, deadly disease that's causing their hair loss that nobody else has been able to find but you just want to briefly go over that. And then sometimes it's also helpful information. Are they having joint aches or pains? Um, is there something else going on? And, and there are a number of people that come and see me who have um, breast lumps, uh, irritable bowel, uh, men irregular menstrual breeding, menorrhagia, and the only doctor that they're seeing is me for their hair loss. So it's nice to ask that because sometimes you can get them on the right track to their medical care. Okay, so we'll look at some pattern recognition now, see, where, see how good our skills are on that. I think there are four major patterns, you know, and I'd be willing to argue that there's, you know, you could add more and we could think of lots of other things, but just to make it sort of simple, and I like to hone everything down to simple because my brain doesn't function on that high level, so I keep it down to simple things. Um, four major patterns, um, frontal vertex thinning with the hairline intact, frontal temporal hairline alopecia, so that's the hairline is no longer intact, patchy or localized hair loss, and diffuse thinning all over the scalp. And I think if you think about those four patterns, that'll get you pretty much where you need to be in most clinics. Now, obviously, there's lots of people off the beaten path, um, but this is pretty much where you need to be. So frontal vertex thinning uh, with the hairline intact is usually female pattern hair loss, telogen effluvium, uh, which is unmasking a mild female pattern hair loss, or CCCA, in my opinion. So this is a gal who came in with telogen effluvium. She had a chemical relaxer that caused significant irritation, stinging and burning and um, outbreak. And there's very impossible to see in this slide, but she had a faint amount of erythema still remaining here. And about um, a month after that, you know, her hair just started falling and falling. And I truly could not tell in this gal if she had alopecia areata or um, telogen effluvium because she had a positive pull test to the tune of about 17 hairs per pull, you know, which is frustrating and scary for patients. Um, so she, she, I did biopsy um, and she had, I took one biopsy from the top and one from the back and they both showed telogen effluvium, which was really good for her because then all of her hair came back. So, but if you look at just the top of the scalp, you might think, hmm, female pattern hair loss. So make sure you check the back of the scalp um, and not just the top, because even though she has a frontal vertex thinning, she really fits more of a diffuse pattern, but the hair loss is worse up here, where she had a little bit of probably female pattern hair loss existing already. This gal is an older, older lady. Um, she's a nurse at our hospital, very nice lady, and she covers her hair loss very, very well, as you can see. Um, but when you look in her scalp, she's got full, full hair in the occipital scalp, but thin hair in the frontal vertex scalp with a great frontal hairline. So this is a, more of a typical female pattern hair loss. Um, this is one of my gals with vertex thinning, um, African-American woman, and this picture doesn't show it up close, but she has a significant loss of follicular openings, some prominence of the hair follicles that are remaining. This um, arrow's pointing at a pustule. So still, again, uh, frontal vertex thing. Her hairline was intact, but this was scarring, and this was CCCA. 
So those are probably going to be where you are with that kind of thinning. Now, I want to mention this um, central scalp alopecia photographic scale in African-American women um, because I think it's been um, it's going to be probably more used in published studies. Um, Olson, Dr. Olson, Lisa Olson uh, at Duke, and in a group of us came together to uh, validate this, this, this uh, scale, which actually Dr. Olson put together from some of her patients, because we felt like we needed something to address this hair loss in African-American women. Now, what this scale doesn't do is it doesn't tell you whether they're scarring or non-scarring hair loss in patients. What it does do is it gives you a pattern. And so we came up with two, two really important patterns, um, the A pattern and the B pattern. And the A pattern, as you can see, kind of goes down and allows the frontal uh, scalp to be more involved and it goes from 1A to 5A um, with more frontal involvement. And then the B pattern allows the vertex to be more involved. And um, we've used this now in a couple of studies. Um, we've uh, got one coming out in um, the JAD soon. Um, so you'll see that. And I unfortunately didn't bring my uh, data from that, but I can tell you about it if you want to know. Anyway, the, um, so, so what this allows you to do is sort of put patients in sort of a, a place where they're starting. And what I thought that we'd do with it was um, just look at it to sort of to, to put people in a, in a starting place and that would be you know where they stay. But what I've noticed after using this in my clinic, which is now a second part of our study, is that I'm finding that people move on the scale. When you treat them, people who have minimal uh, inflammation or have a lot of inflammation keeping their hair from growing and minimal scarring are actually changing and going up to higher levels or, or lower levels of the scale. So it's actually helpful in the clinic to monitor where your patients are because you know from time to time you forget there's no good scale to use you can say 10% of the scalp but what does it really mean this is really helping me sort of gauge where people are when we're treating them for CCCA um, but as I said this scale per se does not tell you whether it's scarring or non-scarring but it was validated by all of us, and what it does show is that in um, terms of hair specialists looking at scalps, it is a valid uh, way to measure hair change. What we did try to do was see if patients could use it. We wanted patients to look at it and see if they could grade their own hair loss, and it was all over the board. Many people thought the hair loss was much better than it is, and most people thought the hair loss was much worse. And it, it makes sense because they really can't see what's going on in the back of the scalp. So um, this is not for patient use, it's only for um, people who are dermatologists or uh, people who are as used to assessing the scalp, um, dermatologic professionals. Um, okay, so now we're going on to the second pattern. Um, frontal temporal hairline alopecia. So what happens when the hairline is gone? What disorder is it then? Well, probably traction alopecia, alopecia areata masquerading as traction. And I think in this case, in, this is alopecia areata. This would be sort of more of an ophiasis pattern. A lot of patients who have this sort of look, um, it extends down um, onto the back as well. So just look for that ophiasis pattern back here. And if you see it, oftentimes it will be alopecia areata. Now, interestingly, traction alopecia can go on the posterior occipital scalp as well. So these two are sometimes hard to, to tell apart, and that's when a biopsy will help you. And then I have an, another um, 
really burgeoning group of people with frontal fibrosing hair loss. Sometimes a hint will be that the hair is, uh, the scalp, scalp skin in the area is really thinned, as you can see the vascular prominence here, um, you know, just really uh, tight skin uh, compared to the face and a lot of inflammatory uh, scaling. Uh, Perifollicularly will also give you that uh, hint, which you don't have with um, alopecia areata or typically with traction alopecia. So. Frontal temporal hairline alopecia, this is usually um, what it is. Um, the other thing I was going to say is that additional symptoms um, can help you. You know, you say, well, what do symptoms say? Oh, people are itching, everybody itches, you know, everybody we see itches. But sometimes, you know, if you have atopic symptoms and you're trying to decide between frontal fibrosing or alopecia areata, you know, that might help you because um, in a study in 2009, the JAD, using the National Alopecia Areata Registry data, um, they looked at alopecia areata patients and their uh, atopy complaints, and out of 2,055 self-registered patients um, versus 558 controls, they found a significant risk of um, of ap or they had a processing, they possessed a history of atopy um, was associated with an increased risk of alopecia areata. So, um, you know, comparing the alopecia areata patients with controls, atopy was really kind of almost a marker for alopecia areata. So kind of remember that when you're talking to your patients. Okay, our next pattern, patchy or localized hair loss. Um, Typically, something like trichotil. Um, I don't call it trichotillomania, but that would be the, the typical name for it, where people are picking at their scalp. Usually, something happens first. You know, they don't come in remembering exactly what it is, but maybe they, um, you know, had a bite there, maybe the one pustule came up, but then they start scratching at it, and then it becomes, um, you know, sort of trichotel when it's localized, and so it becomes sort of a lichen simplex chronicus uh, sort of thing. Um, DLE, uh, discoid lesions of lupus in the scalp, can be very localized and patchy. Obviously, alopecia areata, I didn't put a picture up here, but we've all seen that. Um, and then lichen planar pilaris. Now, some people would argue that this is actually central centrifugal scarring alopecia, so you could actually add this to your, um, to your list here. But think about this when it's very patchy, very, very well localized. You know, you can look for hints. Um, she had a lot of excoriations. That's what you're seeing here is these excoriations in here, and that was how we thought about trichotil, but a, a biopsy actually did show. Um, trichotil changes. And then this one, you know, she had a lot of follicular plugging, um, hyper and hypopigmentation, and um, uh, some of the other plaques had uh, some erythema. So those things were a hint to discoid lesions of lupus. But, you know, I still think biopsying these is super important, but at least it'll give you an idea of where they're going or where they're going to probably end up in terms of diagnosis. And our last pattern is diffuse thinning over the scalp. Um, so diffuse form of hair loss, um, alopecia areata is probably going to be at the top of your list. And actually, I thought this gal had that um, when I first saw her. She had this hair uh, loss, and then she had a long tail of hair. Um, so when she put on a hat, it looked like she had plenty of hair. Um, but when she took it off, this is what she looked like. And she did not tell me, and most people who have really severe trichotil over long periods of time will not tell you in the first visit that they're pulling their hair. They also will like to give you a little quiz to see if you can figure it out because they're coming there, they want treatment, they want help for their hair loss, but they truly don't know how to stop pulling. And even though they internally know that this is related to that, they still don't, um, they still don't tell you. And so 
a lot of times you have to get to that um, store yourself. But when you see it, think about that because I have a number of patients that come in with this extensive hair loss um, and then have Trichotil. So a biopsy is, is your way out and it's also their way out. Um, it's a way to you know, come back to them and say, you know, we're seeing some changes that look like maybe there's some manipulation of the hair, some pulling. Are you feeling like you're scratching at the hairs a lot, pulling them a lot? And give them an out. You know, you don't want to come and say, you're pulling that hair out, quit it. You know, that's not going to help because they've, they've probably told themselves that a million times. Um, female pattern hair loss that can be very, very extensive. Every now and again, I see a patient, um, sometimes with polycystic ovarian syndrome, sometimes not, with very, very severe female pattern hair loss starting from an early age. And that will be diffuse. And then we talked about our, our uh, telogen effluvium lady. So that will be our last, um, our last pattern. Okay, so what do we say about biopsies? Well, I've told you a little bit about my philosophy on that. I think we should biopsy all forms of scarring alopecia because I don't think that we have those down yet. I don't think we understand yet where the inflammation is coming from. And I think it's always good to get that level of inflammation and extent of inflammation. And do biopsy in the active pull test positive areas or transition areas of the scalp of active disease to normal scalp and not in the center of a scarred area. You know, if you go right in the center of a scarred area, obviously it's gonna show scarring and it's gonna to be too late to see what the process is that's causing the scarring. Um, I like two biopsies as I stated. When you're in doubt, when you think there are two things going on or everything doesn't add up, you know, you see that lady with uh, small fine hairs growing back and you think, okay, is it alopecia areata, is it trichotil, biopsy it. Because that'll oftentimes make sure that you're on the right path. And I like to perform it with the patient sitting down. I usually have them sit on my stool, the stool that I usually use at my computer, um, and then use really good lidocaine with epinephrine for hemostasis. If you have time to numb them up, go see another patient, come back, it's always nice. Every now and again, actually probably once a year, I have some resident who you know numbs them up and then uh, tries to do the biopsy right away without adequate numbing, and you know the patient comes out, looks like they were in you know some war, you know with blood, you know all the way down their clothes, and so adequate hemostasis is good. Um, and then I like sutures. A lot of times. You know, it seems quicker to put that gel foam in, and a lot of times people will come to me after having had a biopsy that way, and then they'll have a little um, four millimeter area of scar because of that. So I try to use sutures because I think it's a lot less noticeable. I see a lot of scalps pre and post biopsy, and by far sutures work better, even though they take a little longer uh, to put in. So biopsy location, again, you know, that transition zone. This is a gentleman a patient of mine with central centrifugal scarring alopecia. You know, looking at him first, you might think, oh, male pattern hair loss, but he had a lot of follicular loss, uh, a lot of follicular opening loss. Do not biopsy right in the center of that because you're just not gonna get anything. So this is a nice transition zone somewhere around there. Okay, so now we'll get into actually discussing, um, you know, the particulars of each disease. We've sort of got our approach to the patient, how we're going to approach them when they come to the office. We've got our pattern recognition. We kind of know where we are. Um, and then we'll start looking at each of these disorders sort of as it, as it is. So um, let's see. Let me go back. So we'll talk about frontal parietal hair loss. Um, you know, obviously, we there's some scarring patterns that you can have, and these are all of 
different kinds of scarring, um, but probably the same variant of the same disease, all CCCA in some way. This is my male patient. This is a Caucasian patient that at first blush looks like just female pattern. Um, uh, and then this is, you know, very extensive disease, uh, small amount of disease, but a very thick um, hypertrophic scar. Um, again, you know, significant hair regrowth. So all different patterns um, of frontal parietal scalp scarring. And then our non-scarring ladies are in that group too. So let's look at those. Non-scarring first, telogen effluvium. I think this is perhaps the most difficult um, non-scarring alopecia to diagnose um, because it's constantly changing. And it depends on when they come to see you, which depends on when your openings are. You know, sometimes, it is the case that they'll come in and they'll get to see you very quickly, you know, so they'll get to see you in the acute phase. So it'll be maybe in the first two months and they have sudden shedding and it's the last couple months and their pull test will be extremely positive, you know, more than two hairs per 30 hair pulls. And, and you know, my hair pull is very standardized now because I've been doing it for 16 years, but I do do a pull test really diffusely all over the scalp. So not just one place, but front, you know, bitemporally is a nice cheat area, posterior, make sure you get posterior scalp. Um, and then the mid-phase, they'll have constant shedding. Their pull test may or may not be positive, but usually bitemporally, they'll still be positive. So that's a nice cheat area. Look bitemporally for a positive pull test. In late phase, significant slowing in the shedding. They're still freaked out about the number of hairs they're getting. Um, and they'll have significant, at that point, bitemporal and first frontal vertex sitting on the, on the exam. So that bitemporal scalp will give you a hint. You know, pull their hair back and look and see, is this really different? Um, you know, and do you ask them, do you think that's different if they tell you yes, and you're probably dealing with telogen effluvium. Um, and they still may be positive, but sometimes they're not at this point. And they may have diffuse thinning all over the scalp. Sometimes patients are aware of this and sometimes they're not, but that will uncover a female pattern hair loss and almost everybody over about 30 or 35. So make sure you don't just disregard it and say, oh, it's female pattern hair loss because their general pull test is not positive. If they have, um, you know, uh, something in their history, then I would probably go down the road of telogen effluvium. The most common things that cause it are indeed medications, not necessarily medicines that they've been on for the last 14 years, which is what they wanted to tell you, um, but certainly going on or off of new medications, iron deficiency anemias in patients, especially women who are menstruating, um, often don't know they have this. They just sort of um, use more and more uh, menses protection and don't really think about the fact that it's, you know, heavier over the last five years. Uh, thyroid abnormalities, I do sometimes diagnose these. Um, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll see somebody who hasn't had a thyroid test and this will be the case. You know, people don't know if they're tired anymore. You know, you ask somebody, well, are you more tired than usual? Who knows if they're tired? You know, you have no idea if you're tired. You know, you feel exhausted most of the time. You know, do most of us have a thyroid problem? No, but you don't know, so you can't tell if you're tired. Um, I had a lady come in, uh, she was a fellow in one of the specialties in our hospital. She had two kids, um, so she was working hard. And you know, I asked her, was she tired? She's like, well, I'm always tired, I'm tired, you know, yeah. But not more tired than her usual. Her pull test was amazingly positive. She had a diffuse thinning over the frontal vertex scalp. Um, but her pull test was positive everywhere. Checked her TSH and it was 37. Um, which means that she does have a thyroid disease and that's probably contributing to her fatigue. Um, and I coded it at that time, this was years ago, and I was coding hair loss, the hair loss code uh, for patients who came and see me, saw me. So even though I was the diagnosing physician of her thyroid disorder from her hair loss, um, 
the insurance would not cover her, her visit because it was hair loss code. So I've gotten smarter, I think a little bit, maybe not very much, but a little bit smarter. And um, now when I think of a presumptive diagnosis that I'm checking out, um, I use the thyroid code, thyroid disease code. And so I would encourage people to code for what you're looking for. If you're doing a TSH on someone, if you're doing an iron profile on someone, code for those things and use those as your primary codes and then 704.00 as your tertiary code. And that there's nothing wrong with that. That is typical medical um, coding and it's what everybody else and every other specialty does. So it's not an you know, it's not inaccurate coding, but it will help your patients not get penalized for coming to the dermatologist first. Um, most people know about postpartum alopecia, um, but sometimes they don't. Um, so that'd be a nice little gift you can give them and tell them, of course, that their hair will grow back. Weight loss, you know, when the um, Atkins diet came out, this was, you know, huge. When people first started getting bypass surgeries, gastric bypass, I started seeing a lot. But now they do such a good job of, um, you know, handling, counseling the patients beforehand. They don't usually come to see me about hair loss, but sometimes they do. Protein, calorie, malnutrition, um, physiologic stress. People, as I said, forget about fevers and systemic illnesses and surgery. So what I suggest is that if they come and they say they've been having hair loss for four months, count back for them. Say, okay, so you started having hair loss um, in August. Um, let's go back to three months before August. So you go to May and June, you say, what happened in May and June? Because if you don't, if you just say, oh, what happened last summer? They can't remember that. When you say, what happened in May and June? And a lot of times they can go back and either check their calendar or somebody in the room with them, their parent or sister, brother, will say, you know what, you had a really bad infection. Remember you went and got those antibiotics and you were out of work for a week? And you know, so those things will start to come back to them if you give them a time frame, a month, when they can actually um, hold on to and look for their problem. And then you can define it. Now, they don't always like to believe you that your hair, their hair is gonna come back. So I always schedule them a six month visit and I'd say 90% of the time I was right, the hair is back, it's doing great. It's not back to where it was, but it's back to not falling out and back to growing in. Um, iron deficiency, as I said, is a super important um, component of what we see in young menstruating women, and oftentimes they don't know about it. And you can have hair loss with or without anemia, and this is why you know, I get the whole iron profile with the ferritin. Um, and up to 72% of women with diffuse alopecia, alopecia have, a, have a low ferritin level, and there are a lot of ferritin studies out there, and it's very, very controversial. I'm not going to go through a whole ferritin lecture today, but I do think it's important in general, and so I do get that. And I usually try to get patients around 40. Our lab cutoff is 20, and you'll have to see where most of your labs cut off because it's all different, um, different areas. And I rarely can get people up to that level, um, but I do replace iron. Um, I like new iron, and I don't have any affiliations with that company. I just think it's well tolerated. Um, people uh, don't get as much GI intolerance with new iron as NU-iron. Um, and they only have to take one uh, 150 milligram tablet a day as opposed to iron sulfate or uh, yeah, iron sulfates, which they have to take three, two or three of, and it's just too much to remember. So I use new iron. And the thought is, is that the role of iron in the ribonucleotide reductase um, pathway is that if you don't have enough of it around, you get slow DNA synthesis, and because hairs are such um, increased proliferating cells that you don't have them um, that you don't get them able to proliferate as well, so you get hair loss. And it's not clear exactly how it's working, but that's what we think. And then the whole nutrition eating disorders thing, you know, I have a lot of young women 
who come in and they're really stressed about this hair loss and it's been going on for a while um, and they don't have a strict diet or weight loss regime that has been causing this. Now sometimes there is a history of bulimia or anorexia and again they won't necessarily tell you this on the first visit so you have to ask them. I ask myself well, what's your diet like? Do you have do you eat fruits, vegetables, and meats? And you know, there are other, a lot of people who don't eat um, those sorts of things and they don't tell you because that's just their norm. I had a patient um, who was brought in by her father. She was a teenager um, and he came up from another state to see me because um, his, one of his good friends was our Dermpath person and he knew about my interest in hair loss. And I asked him about his daughter's diet. I asked her about her diet and she said, oh, I'm a vegetarian. And I turned to him and I said, well, how long have you all been vegetarians? And he said, oh, we're not vegetarians. She's a vegetarian. And I said, oh, okay. Well, how does she know what to eat? And does she see she's seen a nutritionist? And, and he said, no, no, she's very healthy. She's always eating fruit. And that is not how you are a vegetarian. You can't just eat fruit. You know, you can't eat an apple and be a good vegetarian. You have to eat a full nutritional panel. So long story short, you know, I kept feeling like there was something else going on with diet. And whenever a bell rings in your mind about what they're eating, it usually means something. Uh, a couple of years later, you know, I told them I wanted them to take her to a nutritionist and um, they didn't do that. She went to camp and started eating more things and it seemed like the hair loss got a little bit better, but then it got worse again. And it turns out she was actually exercising four hours a day and not telling anybody about it and she was bulimic. So if, you, if a bell goes off in your head about what they're eating or they tell you, you know, I know, I know I don't eat very well, send them to a nutritionist. People think because they read about nutrition all the time in magazines and see it on every news program that they know about it. It's sort of like skin. You know, everybody thinks that because they have skin, they know about it and they can go and get something at the store that works, but they really don't, you know. So send them to the nutritionist. Um, and you can see sometimes loss of axillary pubic hair, sometimes increased lanugo hair, sometimes brittle hair um, as well because they're not getting the nutrients. So, you know, feel the texture of the hair, feel like, feel, see if, what it's, if it's healthy or not. That might tell you that their nutrition is poor. Um, so work up, we've kind of gone through this, through, go through the history of um, the last three to nine months for them, help them pinpoint a month there. If there's no identifiable event, consider some labs, an iron panel, CBC with diff and a TSH are really my baseline labs. You know, every now and again, you know, people tell me, oh, I eat a lot of tuna or a lot of salmon or a lot of um, fish or something, I'm going to do a mercury level. But, you know, more often than not, this is my screening panel. So you can certainly take your labs where it needs to be historically, um, but, you know, definitely consider a nutritional consult um, in patients who seem like they have some sort of red flag in their history uh, for nutrition. Uh, we didn't really go through treatment on this, uh, but you know, for them, I try to encourage no treatment. There's a couple reasons why. Um, because if they just have straight telogen effluvium and you start treating them with um, uh, Rogaine, minoxidil for instance, and I do do that off-label sometimes, uh, they can have a little bit of an increased shedding in the first four weeks with the minoxidil, and so they think that what you're giving them makes them worse, and they get freaked out, and they call you, and uh, you know, it's a lot. So sometimes I say, mm, let's not treat it all. Now, if they really, really have to do something, then you can let them do that, but tell them about that shedding beforehand so that they don't get freaked out. You know, they'll still call you and get freaked out, but at least you've told them and they kind of know and they just want to check in with you. So maybe, you know, that, but certainly the other treatments are geared at whatever the problem is. You know, if they have the anemia, the new iron, do it for three months before you check again and then explain to them that it's going to take the whole three months to replace them 
and then they're going to start to see some improvement. So it's a long process, and that's why I give them a long visit, a long way off. And, they, and when I say six months, their eyes get wide, and they say, oh, I'm going to be bald by then. And, you know, no, you're not. You will not be bald by then. So you got to encourage them to kind of hang in there um, and not uh, get freaked out, because it is freaky. It's really weird. I've had telogen effluvium with each of my pregnancies and with surgery, and it is weird. Even I knew what it was, and I thought, oh, look at all that hair, you know, and it's, it really freaks you out. Um, so anyway, so male or female pattern hair loss, uh, formerly called androgenic alopecia. We don't really refer to it as androgenic alopecia, especially with women anymore, because how much the androgens play a role in terms of measuring the androgens in the blood levels, you know, is very minimal. Of course, we think there's still androgens involved in how they are um, affecting this, this, the cells of the follicle. Um, but male and female pattern hair loss is probably the most common form of hair loss in men, unclear for women. But I'm getting more and more men coming in with scarring forms of hair loss, uh, especially my African-American men a lot of times look like male pattern hair loss, but when you look closer, they actually have scarring um, and more of a sort of a follicular Follicularis decalvians or CCCA appearance. Um, and then it's very unclear for women if it's the most common form, but certainly very common. And we know genetic predisposition is certainly there, but it's not a simple Mendelian trait. It's likely very polygenic. You know, people still come in saying, well, you know, no one in my family is, you know, has this and why do I have, well, you know, it's not direct. Obviously, you know, you can have different things from your family members, um, but I would encourage them not to to look solely on that to say, no, I don't have this form of hair loss. And we have the classic Nor Hamilton-Norwood system of, um, of hair loss in men, uh, and this is, you know, you're familiar with that. And then in women, we have this Ludwig system, which is really too, too many jumps, you know, it takes too many jumps from grade one to grade three. So people have come up with different hair scales. The Savin hair density scale is a very nice scale that was um, used for the, um, minoxidil trial in women uh, because the Ludwig staging was just too minimal. And so that's a nice scale, it allows you eight levels, eight jumps instead of three. And it's been used in, as I said, several trials since that time. And, um, you know, usually female pattern hair loss has fairly typical findings. You have diffuse thinning at the frontal vertex scalp. Um, you might have temporal loss, but generally that's reserved for, for telogen effluvium. You'll have vellus hair present in areas of thinning, and the frontal hairline, as I said, will be intact. Um, and how do you see those vellus hairs? Well, if people have dark hair, you can take a white um, piece of paper and just lay uh, it against the scalp and lay hairs over top of it, and you'll see a lot of miniaturized hairs or vellus hairs or intermediate hairs. Um, they can have a positive pull test, but it'll only be positive up in the top, should not be positive in the back. If it's positive in the back, then you should go to telogen effluvium. You can use dermoscopy or biopsy to distinguish from telogen effluvium. A lot of times I do um, if I'm not sure. And you may need a biopsy to convince the patient of a real diagnosis because they're still, remember, looking for that vitamin deficiency. No, no, this can't be female pattern hair loss. My mother had a full head of hair. She died at 80 with a full head of hair. And so you've got to biopsy to tell them, yes, indeed, it is miniaturization. It is going to progress, and so we need to start treating as early as possible um, to give a good result. 
so we know that um, pattern hair loss is really a hair cycle disturbance. Um, and you, so you have decreased time in the antigen or growth phase, which in most people is about five years. So when this hair cycle disturbance begins, and we certainly don't know, you know what the genetic uh, factors are that turn this on or off, um, but you end up getting less and less time in antigen, so the hairs don't have time to mature to full terminal hair. So they're only there as those little vellus or intermediate hairs that we talked about a minute ago. We know that there's hormonal control regarding this, and we don't know exactly how it works, um, and it's different in men versus women. And we know that all these hormones play a role. Um, it's a little bit more clear in, in men, obviously, than women. Now, women, you know, if you see people who are younger than 20, you know, you might want to do a little bit more testing on them to rule out congenital adrenal hyperplasia, a neoplasm, a drug-related side effect, or polycystic ovarian disease, or if it's acute onset of hair loss. For a while there, and it's not as common now, people were running out and taking DHEAS or DHEA because um, it was touted as a... Um, something that would decrease your aging, you know, and it was something that people thought would um, make them more virile and more active. And so women were taking it and it was being turned into DHAS and testosterone in the system and they were having a lot of hair loss. And there's still these aging clinics that do a lot of injections and a lot of medications. And um, sometimes you'll find that they'll be taking a little bit of testosterone and a little bit of DHA. So I always ask about that. Do you take this? Because if you don't ask them, they think of it as an important vitamin for their aging. They don't think of it as something that's affecting their hair loss. So make sure you ask about that. And then, um, you know, if, they're, if you can't find it, uh, but they have these symptoms, you know, then I share them with my friendly neighborhood endocrinologist to make sure I'm not missing anything. Or if I do check and the levels are high. Treatment options, well, we've got a lot of them. And most of the time when we have a lot of them, that means there's no one good one. But for women, we've got, you know, more options than we think. The 2% minoxidil solution, the 5% minoxidil solution, which of course is off-label because 5% minoxidil is not approved in this country for women, and the 5% foam, but um, there have been studies on um, the 5% solution in women showing that it's very efficacious, increased uh, risk of irritation um, can occur, and even moving from the 2% to the 5% can cause a little bit of a shedding, like I said, in that first month. But they're very, very um, important in terms of how uh, people do. I think these are probably the biggest drug we have in our armamentarium around right now for hair loss and, and both women and men. So really, be it, don't be afraid to use it. You know, my patients say to me, and I, I wish I had um, a dollar for every time somebody says, because I'd be really, really swimming in the bucks right now. I don't want to start using Rogaine because I have to use it for the rest of my life. And I said, well, you know, if, it, if, you're, if, you, if you think your hairs are important to keep for the rest of your life, then use it. You know, you don't get up in the morning when you're 40 years old and say, you know what, I've been brushing my teeth for almost 40 years. I am just tired of it. I'm just going to stop it. I'm just going to quit it. You know, if you want to keep your teeth, you brush them. So if you want to keep your hair, put some minoxidil on. Um, so, you know, I, that's how I tell them. And they sometimes listen, sometimes they don't. Anti-androgens, I use quite a bit of this in my practice. I use both spironolactone and um, flutamide in my practice. I didn't go through these specifically, um, but the spironolactone in my hands does not work as well as the flutamide, but it's really a tried and true drug out there. And if you can get them up to 150 milligrams or 200, 200 milligrams a day, you may get some improvement in female pattern hair loss. For my polycystic ovarian syndrome women, I really like it. The problem is if they're not on a concomitant oral contraceptive, 
negative or have a hysterectomy or something like that, then they do spot a lot. So and they don't like that. So uh, make sure that they're on an oral contraceptive. Um, but that can work very well. Again, you don't see improvement until very long down the line. Flutamide I like, again, also has to be monitored as does the spironolactone. And the risk with that is um, uh, a um, idiosyncratic uh, increase in, in um, hepatitis, so it's drug-induced hepatitis. I monitor the LFTs probably more than I need to. It's usually an idiosyncratic reaction, so it happens right away if it's gonna happen. I've had probably about five in my lifetime women whose um, LFTs bumped and I've just taken them off and it's gone right back down, but I do get that uh, LFT uh, right around two to three weeks so that I don't miss it. And then after that, I just check every six months. And also in spironolactone patients, I do check their potassium. I wish we had cytoproterone acetate in this country, but we don't. Um, try to have some wig and hairpiece places um, that you can refer patients to that are nice and have good ones. Surgical hair restoration. A lot of women don't realize that they can get this, and it works so well in women. So have somebody that's close in your area who can do this and work with you while you're doing your medical treatment. They can get their surgical treatment. I do use 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, finasteride only, as a matter of fact, in women um, who are not um, able to have children. So that could mean that they have their, a tubal, they could have had a hysterectomy, or um, be postmenopausal. I don't use it in women um, of childbearing potential simply because there's just no data out there. You know, there is data for the other two in um, um, hyperangiogenic uh, hyperangiogenemia in women, but not for hair loss. So I don't use that. And I don't use dutasteride at all. Um, and then I use combinations, obviously, of all these. And people ask me now about the laser combs. You know, what is the, what is the this deal with the low-level laser light? And um, at this point, I'm reserving my judgment because uh, there are very few um, studies out there that are not done by the company. But I have a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Maria Herdinsky in Minnesota. You guys may know her. Uh, she's the chair there and also a hair researcher. And she's doing a study in women with female pattern hair loss right now using um, one of the Level, low, le low level laser lights for hair, for, for hair loss. And I'm gonna wait and see what she comes up with. And if she comes up with something, I'll, I'll start referring it, uh, people for it. Um, and then the same kinds of things for men. I prefer men not to do hair pieces because I think they look a little less uh, normal, but you know, if they can figure out a way to do it, you know, that's fine. And I certainly use 5-alpha reductase inhibitors in men. Um, I don't use, uh, people often ask me to write for ProScar for them so that they can get it covered. And that's actually fraud. Um, if your records are evaluated. So I actually don't, I write for Propecia and then, but for women, I do write for ProScar. I do 2.5 milligrams of finasteride because I think that level works in them, whereas the one milligram doesn't work as well. And so this is a response that you could potentially see in a woman. This is patient A up on top with 2% minoxidil. And I could show you the same slides for finasteride, same slides for um, flutamide, same slides for uh, minoxidil 5%. And so, you know, you do improve, but you got to wait. You know, you don't get it overnight, 16 weeks. You know, people say, oh, I tried that Rogaine. And I said, how long did you try it? A couple months, and it didn't do anything. Well, one hair cycle is three months. So you gotta be on it for at least two hair cycles, which is six months, and preferably three hair cycles, which is nine months. Um, another patient with very significant female pattern hair loss, you might think this person would never improve with anything, but 2% minoxidil, and so you just really gotta go on it. Remember, if you wanna keep those hairs, those thicken up those vellus and intermediate hairs that are here, but not contributing to density, this is gonna be the way to go. Um, so we'll move into scarring hair loss. I'll work on this side because I feel like I'm ignoring you guys. I have my, my um, 
thing over here, but if you can't hear me, let me know. So we've seen this picture. Um, so I would biopsy all presumed scarring alopecias, and I've already gone through sort of my feelings of, about why I do that. I do two four millimeter punch. I just can't underscore enough how important it is to biopsy these patients and see um, what's going on from the really active areas. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about chronic cutaneous lupus erythematosus, and the reason I do this is not because we don't know it when we see it. A lot of times when it's typical, we do, but I get a lot of referrals for patients with hair loss, um, people thinking it's alopecia areata when it's not really, really inflammatory, which is another reason to do a biopsy if you see even a hint of abnormal pigmentation. Um, people thinking it's psoriasis when it's hypertrophic. Um, I've had people refer to me for light therapy for lupus patients, you know, because they think that they have psoriasis. So um, look for the follicular plugging, look for the scaling, the hyper and hypopigmentation, the erythema. In other words, the poikilodermatous changes. Um, look for any area of the scalp where it's really well demarcated instead of just kind of diffuse. Um, ask questions about whether or not they have associated um, systemic lupus, joint signs, skin signs. In every one of my DLE patients, I always do check uh, just baseline labs, the CMP, CBC, and uh, ANA. Um, and then the differential diagnosis, diagnosis will be lichen simplex chronicus, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, allergic contact dermatitis, again, all of which you can determine um, from a biopsy. This is a little bit easier patient because she had so much extensive loss and she has the hypopigmentation, still has erythema here, and you have to decide, you know, is that active disease? And part of it may be whether or not she tells you if she has itching or pain in that area. Um, or if it's uh, inflammation, or if it's just vascular change from the scarring process, which can occur. And that will change your treatment, you know, because for these patients, I use a lot of intralesionals to try to take down their symptoms. Um, and if she's really not having symptoms here, you might question whether or not this was just from scar. Um, but the, the course in this patient would be to take a course to try to minimize further involvement. So where you see um, erythema inject, um, and you know it's inflammatory inject, you're really trying to minimize her symptoms as opposed to um, get her hair back at this point. But I think the people who are early, well, let's go for it. People who are early, and this doesn't look very early, maybe that central area won't come back, but people who have active hair loss on the sides, when I do these biopsies, if I take them from just the right place, I get telogen effluvium associated with the, uh, with the uh, lupus. So I think a lot of people have loss that is greater than the actual lupus lesion. So if you do your injections, you can save a lot of these hairs because they're not all uh, committed to death yet. So even though this place may not come back, sometimes I'm surprised they do. Um, partially, you can really improve hair regrowth on these patients depending on the point in which you see them. This is one of my patients who had extensive um, discoid lesions of lupus and very severe um, uh, lupus as well. She uh, was my patient since a teenager and she passed away this year uh, from her lupus and I watched her over the years um, getting sicker and sicker from this disease and, and um, her skin was just relentless. She was somebody who we tried to get on thalidomide, her insurance wouldn't cover it. You know, now that thalidomide is used for oncology diseases, it costs a bazillion dollars and you know, we used to use a lot of it in our department, probably more than any other department in the country because of Joe Urizzo and his interest in rheumatologic disease. So now we're stuck with not being able to use that, um, which would have been a great um, drug for her. And I tried to encourage her to go on Rituxan, uh, Rituximab for her disease because her rheumatologist was trying to push her that way. She had kidney failure, she was on um, peritoneal dialysis and just getting sicker and sicker by the moment. And she had her first dose of it and had a flare 
soon after or was in a flare and then got sicker and she would never take another dose but actually her skin lesions and her disease kind of quieted down for a while after that even though she had a little bit of a flare and she just wouldn't do it and unfortunately she um, just really didn't uh, became a non-compliant patient and, and I think she was just tired is what I think so she passed away but look for the hints you know she had um, her ears involved you know if you're not sure what's going on in that scalp look for the ears you know is it coming down posterior auricularly um, obviously she had it everywhere and she even had hyperkeratotic disease which at one point was thought to be squamous cell but she had hyperkeratotic lesions of lupus um, and so your patients can really be um, improved if you can get them on treatment so treat systemic lupus if it's there Topical interlesion or oral corticosteroids. I rarely use oral corticosteroids in my patients for DLE lesions, um, but if they're already on them, I do pay attention to where they are in, its, in their taper because I expect that as they come off their taper for their joints and internal disease, their skin is gonna worsen and I need to know that so I can be right there ready for some treatment. I do use a lot of antimalarials. Hydrochloroquine is my uh, favorite, but I do use quinacrine in our area um, because sometimes we can't get this or, or sometimes I can't take this because of side effects or because sometimes um, they're on a, a maximal dose and I don't like to go above uh, 200 twice a day of hydrochloroquine and I can add one quinacrine um, and get where I would need to be um, without side effects. Um, and even though this turns them a little yellow, um, it turns them less yellow if you only use one. Uh, so people could tolerate it. And a lot of my patients are African-American and you don't see the yellow. I do use imuran and methotrexate cyclophosphamide very rarely. I don't use a lot of oral retinoids, but I do use dapsothalidomide and rituximab when I can. I don't use it singularly, but with um, the team, I do sometimes recommend rituximab, and I've had some good results with that. So lichen plantar pilaris, classic type, really well-demarcated areas of erythema with perifollicular scaling, central scarring. This is a person who had it in their, in their fingers. You know, when people have it in the scalp and you're not sure if it's that, look on their mouth, look on their body, because a lot of them have a lot of loss um, associated with it other places and they just never really noticed it. Um, this is another patient with um, sort of punched out uh, uh, lesions almost looking like um, uh, pseudopalad and I still think that's a variant of LPP um, and so these are well demarcated. Sometimes you can uh, figure that these are alopecia areata plaques because, or patches because they're there, but if, if you look there, you have a really concave center, and that would not happen in alopecia areata, but if you're not sure, biopsy. That's what you want to do is biopsy, biopsy, biopsy. And I've had my fair share, not my fair share, but a couple over the years that I've said, you have lichen planus. You will never change, you will never get better because the biopsy was read that way, and then they came back completely regrown, and I was like, oh, oh. You know, and I looked at the biopsy, and again, you know, it showed more alopecia findings than LPP findings. But you know, your, your pathologist can make mistakes too, so follow them closely to make sure that they're responding and acting like whatever you say they are. Treatment is very similar to that for chronic cutaneous lupus. I do intralesional corticosteroids every four to eight weeks in these patients for active lesions, things that I think are are clinically active or active by biopsy. I use potent and ultra-potent topical steroids, um, usually three to four times weekly, and I ratchet it up and down depending on symptoms. Um, same here with the hydrochloroquine and quinacrine as my first-line agents. Um, oral corticosteroids, I do use this sometimes just to break a, a, a flare and then maybe follow it up with a six to nine month course of cyclosporin or methotrexate. I use uh, mycophenolate mofetil in this disease, but I don't think it works as well as I like it, as I'd like it to work. Um, PPAR gamma agonists or Actos 
um, has been recently talked about in the literature. I'll talk about that in a second. And then you really need to do aggressive therapy for, click, for, for progressive disease because you'll, you'll lose, um, you'll lose the hair if you don't. So this um, Actos deal, where did this come from? Well, um, Pratima Karnik at the um, Case Western um, School of Medicine is a scientist who found uh, a group of monkeys, or not monkeys, a group of mice that have a very similar look to Lycoplanum pilaris scarring alopecia. And when she looked at them, they had something wrong with their peroxisomes, um, which is how we um, process our lipids. And so they were not getting, um, they were not processing their lipids correctly, and they're getting a pro-inflammatory kind of lipid accumulation, and then uh, infiltrate would come in and kill the cells, and they got an alopecia that looked like lichen planum pilaris. So that sort of sparked this idea that maybe the PPAR gamma drugs could help with um, things like lichen planus. And so uh, taking this one step further, uh, Pratima Karnik and, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name right now, um, Another uh, young woman who works at Case Western uh, decided to try it on a patient, and they they presented this data in I think um, in the archives or JAD, and one patient got better. Um, since that time, um, we have uh, you know other people have tried it. I've just started trying it. You know, the Actos was taken a lot of the. The, the drugs like it have been taken off the market for a lot of side effects, and Actos is not side effect free. So I don't recommend rushing right out and doing it, and I don't think it's a miracle drug, but it's something out there, and I think we should keep our radar up to look and see what's gonna happen with it. Okay, so we're gonna go through this last little bit here. Frontal fibrosing alopecia, I think of it as a variant of lichen planum pilaris, and you get the progressive recession of the frontal temporal hairline as we've kind of go over, the atrophy with vessel prominence, perifollicular erythema and hyperkeratosis in active areas. And so this is a typical patient of mine. They'll come in and say, my hairline's changing. And you know, when it gets to this point, you can say, yes, I agree. But sometimes when they come, you know, sometimes, sometimes they come in early and it's still not that much, but they say, no, 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 my hairline really used to be down here. And I used to look at these patients like, mm. But they really do. Look at their eyebrows, they're lost. And this is another patient, not quite as far, you saw her picture earlier, um, but this is her frontal patient, her frontal picture, and she's got a lot of inflammation right around here. And I mean, it's almost like she's wrinkly, 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 and then no wrinkles, you know. There's something definitely going on in the skin that you can um, say is, you know, not, not something that she's had forever. This is uh, one of my early patients. You can see all the perifollicular scale that she has. And not only that, but if you look back in the scalp, she's got other areas as well in the scalp that look like typical lichen planum pilaris. And that's why I think it's all a variant of, this, of the same disease. In a recent review, um, Samaral, uh, along with uh, Vera Price from San Francisco, looked at 36 patients, and they used the new activity index um, and they looked at response to hydrochloroquine, doxycycline, and, and Celsept. And they really only found that there were um, reductions in signs and symptoms at six and 12 months in patients taking the hydrochloroquine. But it's a really small study, so I, I, don't, I don't necessarily go along with that. But it was a nice study because they finally looked at it. You know, nobody's looking at it. Uh, most of the subjects were women, most of them were Caucasian, most of them postmenopausal, a lot of scalp paritis, and perifollicular edema. So um, it will give you a little bit of, um, of a leg to stand on to start out with hydrochloroquine with patients since they've published this study. The other interesting study I found was at St. John's in London, 
They looked at 13 patients, 11 of whom were postmenopausal, scalp, eyebrow, and body, and they found clinical loss of eyebrows in 10, to 13, 10 of the 13 subjects with body hair loss. And when they biopsied the eyebrows, the upper limb, and scalp, they saw the same findings on the eyebrows and the scalp, I mean, and the upper limb that they saw on the scalp. So a lot of these patients are experiencing hair loss other places, but they just don't think about it or look. And that'll give you a hint, you know, when you go. So CCCA, we've talked a lot about this. We know about this. It's mostly African-American women, 30 to 65 years of age. We talked about the frontal versus the vertex variety. It occurs in patients who have never used hot combs or relaxers. Um, it predated chemical relaxers and is often accompanied by traction. So we still don't know what it's caused by. I personally think that there is a, uh, traction is a common theme and that there are no African-American women or even African women who haven't at some time pulled their hair back. And I think that that coiled follicular structure with stress on it um, probably causes this later in life. This is a mild disease in one of my patients, severe disease in one of my patients. And this picture of somebody that you've seen with pustular disease, so more inflammatory disease with moderate uh, change. Um, we talked about the photographic scale pretty well, so this is what I use on a daily basis and I use in studies. And I treat, I treat the patients because most of them when they come to me are still having inflammation even if they've had it for years. I decrease the heat to the vertex. A lot of women sit under hood dryers and I tell them to quit that because I think it cooks the inflammation decrease all the traumatic hair styling methods. You know, they can still keep up with chemicals as long as they protect the scalp, because I don't think of that as traumatic. And I have plenty of patients who are African who have this and they've never used heat or chemical relaxers. Decrease inflammation with topical and intralesional steroids. I use, I, I use intralesional steroids for eight rounds, seven and a half to 10 milligrams per cc for three cc max. Um, if they have pustule, and I use um, every probably six to eight weeks, um, pustular disease, I use oral topical antibiotics and I push the treatment until they're symptom free. If they've never had symptoms, I do the eight and leave it at that. And then post-inflammatory around six treatments, um, six, six treatment I try minoxidil for prolongation of antigen and recommend surgical restoration. And all of my scarring hair loss patients I send to CARF, the website www.carfinternationalintl.org. They have brochures for CCCA separately as well as cicatricial alopecias generally. Very nice website, very active website. And this is how we're gonna finish up. Prior to treatment, after all of her intralesional steroids and topical steroids, um, you know, you might not think that this is major, she still has to wear a hairpiece, but the hairs are longer. The hairs in the area are contributing more to density. That frontal hair is healthier. So we did deal with the hair shafts as well as the scarring process, and she didn't have any more symptoms, which was nice. And one of my patients, um, I had her, her, her uh, flip, uh, it, unfortunately, this should be flipped the other way, but I scanned it in wrong. 2008, 2009 with intralesionals, topical steroids, and minoxidil. Um, much better, you know, she had those little hairs there, they were able to grow and contribute to density, and um, probably her female pattern hair loss got a little better with the minoxidil, much nicer coverage. Um, 2008 to 2009 with intralesionals, topical steroids, and minoxidil. Again, not major uh, in terms of complete covering, but she's able to pull her hair back or pull it up. These hairs are much longer, much healthier, and more contributory to, to coverage. And this is my, one of my Nigerian ladies, young woman, who had never had any chemicals or um, heat to her hair, 
um, and she had very significant disease. We did her intralesionals, um, topical steroids, and she had transplants, and it did very, very nicely. And this is before they even came fully in. Um, and of course, they have to maintain topicals and um, minoxidil if they're using it. The challenge is when people come in with more than one thing, and I'm not gonna go into it because we don't have time today, but now that you know sort of the basic underlying things, you can kind of see what things could be overlapping. But these are probably the most challenging forms of disease that I see um, because many people come in with more than one thing happening, female pattern, telogen effluvium, scarring, female, et cetera. So summary, set your patient's expectations, address their fears of going completely bald, um, make sure they're compliant with home treatments. You know, tell them how to use them. Tell them what will happen if they don't use them. Tell them what will happen if they do. Refer them to support organizations when possible. Um, good stylists help. And chart progression for you and your patient with photos, dermoscopy, follicular scopes, or whatever it is that you like to use in your, pa in your patients in your office. And thank you for your attention. Yes, I have time for a oh, little is this on? Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, do you have any suggestions for patients with beginning ophiasis pattern hair loss? I've got a lot of, I've actually had three patients, women, who it's receding from the base up, and I don't know, you know, where to go because we're doing interlesional steroids without any Atrophy. stopping it. Yeah. yeah and it's not stopping the hair loss. So you're doing interlesionals now? Yeah. How frequently? Every, like, three to four weeks. Uh -huh. And how, what's your concentration? Well, we've decreased, we started at like five milligrams per ml, and okay. then we've decreased to okay. 2.5. Okay, well, it sounds, sounds like you're doing exactly what you should be doing. What I would do is add ultra-potent topical steroids under occlusion, either cream, clobetazole, um, five days a week, or Olex foam twice a day, five days a week. Okay. Um, to the area, along with minoxidil 5%, either the okay. foam or the solution, and you might be able to get sore. The other thing that you can do is you can do a steroid pulse. You know, I didn't talk about alopecia out extensively today, but you could do, you know, for average size woman, 50 milligrams uh, down to zero over about six weeks, in addition to the topicals that I talked about, yeah. and that might get her going. Right, and then mm -hmm. my other question is, I have two patients with frontal fibrosing. Um, scarring alopecia, and it's kind of just in the central pattern. Ah. And they, is there any way of stopping further growth of that? Except for these, I saw the, the very small study that you had. I'm sorry, is it stopping the... Of, stopping further growth. Further progression further, of the disease. Yeah, further progression well, of know, the disease. you um, know, I think you have to get them on orals, and you have to just follow them. And the reason is, is that this is insipidus, you know, sipious. It's kind of insidious. It kind of goes very slowly, and you think, oh, it's not really active because it doesn't look red and inflamed. But underneath, it is very active. So I think the only way is to get on the orals, do the topical injections at the, at the margins, yeah. and keep, you know the intralesional conjectures and do topical meds. I mean, that's what we have right now. Yeah. And anybody who has hair loss, basically I'm throwing minoxidil at them because it helps the density yeah. overall. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Do you have any other tricks for folliculitis to Calvin's? Mm. Okay, I didn't talk about folliculitis to Calvin's separately, but I do think that most of the things that we do for dissecting cellulitis can work for that. So I would probably do, um, if you haven't tried it, triple antibiotic therapy, clindamycin, rifampin, 
um, you know, maybe a combination of two of those. And if not, then you can add in a third um, for at least a six-month course to see how they do. That would be my first choice. The other thing I do a lot for follicular isocalbins is Accutane or isotretinoin um, for longer than what we would normally do for face and sometimes a higher dose. So I will go up above 80 milligrams a day if they can tolerate it, especially if they're guys. Um, but that's probably where I would go um, with your follicular isocalbins. Good question. Thank you. Uh, would you talk briefly again about the, why the necessity for two kinds of biopsies for horizontal and yes, for vertical yes. sectioning, just briefly? Okay, sure. I kind of flew over that. Um, but I think that what we've shown now is that we get a good view of the epidermis if we get a horizontal section. And you might miss lupus, you might miss the lichen planus inflammation if you don't get that. But if you don't see, um, you know, sort of the whole idea of how many follicles there are, how many follicular units there are, um, by looking at it, you know, transversely, then I think we miss what's going on as well because, you know, part of how we do, how we look at it pathologically is like how many follicular units are there, are they normal? Are they miniaturized? Are there crying, I mean, are there um, spacious glands normal? Is there inflammation now? So it gives you all the information that you could possibly need. You know, you're only doing a little tiny four millimeter punch. If you can get like, two of those, it makes it easier. And once you explain that to patients, they, they are, they're fine with it. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Sure, thank you. Are there any circumstances under which you'll biopsy for immuno? Biopsy for DIF, direct immunofluorescence? You know, I really don't do a lot of that. Uh, you know, I think that if you're really concerned about your lupus patients, I think that, you know, you're missing lupus, that that could be reasonable. But, uh, you know, people have done um, immunofluorescence in lichen planus and CCCA and all the scarring hair loss, and all, certainly all the non-scarring ones years ago. And we didn't really find anything um, that was real helpful. But I have some patients who have very unusual forms of hair loss, and I didn't go into that here because it was sort of off topic, but I have a, a, a couple of patients who have pemphigus in the scalp, who have uh, cicatricial pemphigoid. So if you're not getting, if, you're, if something in the back of your mind is telling you that you're dealing with something other than one of the typical forms of hair loss, absolutely, you know, you know go ahead and do it because sometimes you'll find something. But it usually it's not helpful. Thanks. Great talk. Thank you. Thank you for the talk. Um, question about uh, any shampoos over the counter that claim to help with hair growth or anything like that? Yes. Mm -hmm. the, a lot of, there are a couple different hair shampoos over the, over the counter that talk about hair growth. And what, um, what they can be is they can be a group of shampoos that are sold with a program of products. I'm thinking of, um, for instance, Nioxin. Uh, which was just actually recently bought by Procter & Gamble. I'm not sure exactly what they're going to do with it, but anyway, um, they have uh, shampoos, they have serums, and then you know, sort of a whole program of products. And people really like programs. They think programs work because of proactive and all that. But what we found is is that there's shampoo is nothing in it really that's medicinal. But it, one, of them, one of the products in the program has Rogaine in it and Minoxidil in it, uh, usually 2% levels. How much, I don't know. So it, it's part of a program. Now, the other thing that can be helpful is that people who have thinning hair can use a hair shampoo that kind of um, gives the hair itself volume. So what it does is it swells the hair shaft, and so it makes it look more voluminous. And if you have a normal hair shaft, you don't have a lot of dye, a lot of, you know, um, damage to the hair shaft, that's fine. For my African-American women, I, women, I never recommend that kind of shampoo because their hair shafts are usually too fragile for it. But if you have straight 
um, telogen effluvium, straight female pattern hair loss, and normal hair shafts, those volumizing shampoos can be very helpful. How do you recommend protecting the scalp uh, when a female has a relaxer? Um, take care of the scalp. Well, you, you said um, that females with central centrifugal cicatrical alopecia can have relaxers, but they need to protect the scalp. Oh, how do I? Yeah, okay, good question. Um, generally, I recommend that they, number one, have the a chemical relaxer placed in a salon as opposed to doing it at home because even if you're good at it, you've been doing it for years, you're doing it on yourself and it's just, you know, hazard to that. And then what they do in a reasonable salon is they usually bait, they sort of protect the scalp with a petrolatum-based product. And so they can put that all over the scalp and make sure that they, they're only treating the new growth instead of the scalp hair. So, so to me, it's, um, you know, sort of just good practice um, in a good salon. Now, it doesn't always happen because not everybody goes to a good salon, but I would recommend to them to make sure they're in a salon that does that routinely. Yes, what is your experience with um, squaric acid for uh, diffuse alopecia areata? Oh, I love squaric acid. Um, I have used squaric, I used squaric acid for nine years until the medical center told me that because it was not approved for any use in this country, I had to stop doing it um, because it's not covered under my malpractice. But before that, I loved it. And I think that it can be very, very helpful. In the major studies um, and in our study that we did, uh, looking at patients who were coming from other dermatologists, most of them had, had at least two to three treatments prior to seeing me, um, we had a probably 35 to 40% regrowth um, in some of the toughest cases uh, that was cosmetically or cosmetically acceptable or complete. And obviously in patients who um, haven't had all that many treatments and are not that brittle, probably even do better. So I think it's a great idea. Um, we used to sensitize in the office and back when I was using it, we gave it to patients. There are some obvious side effects and complications you have to talk to people about. Um, and you, if your patients really live in a reasonable, close vicinity to your practice, then you can certainly do it in the office, because all you need to do is once a week. And they can just come in, a nurse can do it for them, and they can leave. But so many of my patients were coming from so far away, I would give it to them. Um, I'm not sure I would do it in this day and age, though. Give, give it to them. I would do it if I could, but I wouldn't give it to them. <clears throat> yes, ma'am. Um, is there a type of supplement um, or vitamin you would recommend? Like we recommend biotin and Marlin Formula 50, but is there anything else? Yeah, um, you know, the unfortunate thing about vitamins and hair loss is that, you know, there's a lot of myths, there are a lot of myths out there about what they can really do. Um, I supplement when there's a problem, you know, if they're anemic, I supplement iron. If they're not anemic, I usually just make sure they're eating a nutritionally balanced diet. And um, I think biotin can work for people who have hair shaft fragility um, and breakage, but it doesn't affect the hair cycle at all, at all. Now your nails are affected very well, very nicely with two, at least 2.5 to three milligrams of biotin, but I don't think it really helps the hair growth in any way. So that's my personal bias, and I don't think any scientific information is out there to show that supplementation really helps in any way for hair loss because you know remember we're talking about cycling you know and we're not or inflammation and I don't think we have vitamins for that so be careful about recommending vitamins I think they people put too much stock in that for now maybe one day we could be do, we can do that yes ma'am thank you for taking my question excellent talk um, do you have any favorite cosmetic cover-ups as far as oh. you, know, you see sprays you see powder that they can yeah. put in but what can we give them to kind of give them instant yeah. 
uh, cosmetic correction like while they're waiting topic. for the medications? Yeah, I like that question. The topic, T-O-P-P-I-K, I think it's called, topic, and they have a website, and they have different kinds on there, um, different colors. And the other one that I haven't had a chance to, to use yet, but some of my patients have gotten it and liked it, is the Joan Rivers one. There's Joan Rivers has, and I don't know what she calls it, but I'm sure if you go on her website, I know she sells it in infomercials and stuff, but um, they have liked that even better than the topic. So, and I don't have any association with Joan Rivers, but yeah. She has a good leg cover up too for veins and things. Oh yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. Uh -huh. Thank you. Thank you guys.